From the studios of KPCW in Park City, it's This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about the environment and our relationships with it. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Nell Larson. The UN Conference of the Parties, or COP27, met for the 27th time, this time in Egypt during the month of November. Countries from around the world gathered for COP27 to consider and decide upon the key actions necessary to ensure that the global response to climate change is more equitable, fully implemented, (laughs) and ambitious enough to hold temperature rise due to greenhouse gases below 3 degrees Fahrenheit. Joining us in the first part of the show to recap the discussions, challenges, and the commitments of COP27 will be Joe Thwaites, International Climate Finance Advocate with the Natural Resources Defense Council. Then in the second half of the show, we'll speak with Jared Farmer, professor of history at the University of Pennsylvania and author of the new book, Elder Flora, a modern history of ancient trees. Professor Farmer tells the epic story of the planet's oldest trees, thousands of years in some cases, the role naturalists played in tracking down and dating these species, and how societies have both protected and exploited these elder trees. Environmental awareness and education, that's what this green earth is all about. Stay with us. Joining us is Joe Thwaites. He is an NRDC representative, uh, specifically in the area of international climate finance advocacy. Uh, But he's here to talk about COP27 uh, that just wrapped up or so. Um, It was held in Egypt, and he's here to give us a recap of COP27. Joe, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Chris and Nell. It's great to be with you. Well, let's start here, make sure our listeners understand a little definition of terms. COP, conference, the UN Conference of the Parties. This is the 27th time they have met. Do you recall or were you were we around with, uh, when <laughs> COP1 occurred? <laughs> so, um, yeah, COP1 took place in 1995. So I was, I was a kid back then. Um, <laughs> And, um, and, and yeah, the, the, the convention, uh, the, the, so it, the conference of the parties, um, the parties means uh, parties to the convention. So these are all uh, sovereign governments. Um, they signed a convention in 1992 called the UN Convention on, uh, UN Framework Convention on Climate Change or UNFCCC for short. And the, this whole process is an absolute acronym soup. There are so many acronyms all over the place. So <laughs> do you feel free to stop me if I start talking in acronyms? Um, but the first, so the convention was, uh, was agreed in 1992. And then the first COP uh, was in 1995. And there have been 27 since then. Uh, one every year, except for in 2020, due to the pandemic. Um, COP26 was last year in Glasgow, and COP27 uh, took place just last month in Sharm el-Sheikh, uh, which is a resort town in Egypt. Right. It's, it's interesting. Uh, you say 1992, um, you know, there was evidence enough. And well, let's go back into the 80s. There was, and maybe even the 70s, there was growing evidence to suggest that greenhouse, human-created uh, greenhouse gases were uh, uh, increasing carbon dioxide, methane levels in the atmosphere, which led to increasing temperatures, atmospheric temperatures. So this, is, this has been a 30, 40, 50-year 30, process 
the UN got involved in the in the 90s. I'm assuming that the first four or five or six cops were all about, hey, convincing the rest of the world this was a problem and, and, and uh, <clears throat> presenting, forwarding lots of science to support that. Yeah, so the, well, the first few cops were, were focused on, um, on, on coming up with what, what became known as the Kyoto Protocol mm -hmm. that was agreed in 1997 uh, in, in the city of Kyoto in Japan. Um, and under the Kyoto Protocol, the idea was that the, the developed countries um, would, would take the first actions. Um, the, this, was, this was based on the principle of equity that the, the countries that have done the most pollution uh, historically should, should go first. Mm. Um, and so the Kyoto Protocol was agreed in 1997 and countries uh, started ratifying it. Um, but as, as you may be aware, the, the, the United States um, didn't didn't ratify it in the end, even though they played a big role in negotiating it. The Clinton administration um, and, and Vice President Al Gore, in particular, um, played a big role in in shaping the Kyoto Protocol. But then, uh, under the, the the Bush administration, they didn't go forward and, and ratify it. They didn't put it. Uh, the Senate uh, didn't ratify it. Um, and and that really hampered the effectiveness of the Kyoto Protocol. Hmm. And then over the next decade, or, or more than a decade actually, um, there was there was sort of the European Union um, and and Japan and 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 other other countries, Australia, Canada, um, who who had emissions reduction uh, commitments under Kyoto, um, started to 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 try to meet those goals but the fact that the us didn't participate made it very difficult and a lot of other governments were, were saying well this isn't fair if, if the us isn't on board then why should we do more um and and so then you had um a, an effort in in um uh in 2009 to to reach a new comprehensive agreement um uh that that was uh, in copenhagen mm -hmm. but those talks uh quite famously collapsed um uh, it, with, without a, a new um, treaty or, or, or agreement. Um, and they went back to the drawing board again. And six years later, in 2015, in Paris, they did agree the Paris Agreement. And that was a big step forward, because unlike the Kyoto Protocol, which only had uh, targets for, for the developed countries, the Paris Agreement, um, every country agreed to do to do more. Every country agreed to come up with their own plans, uh, nationally determined, um, and 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 to submit those every five years, um, and then every five years after that to to come up with more ambitious uh, targets and, and plans. And the the idea behind Paris was really that the you know the top down target setting. Um, certainly, if you're only going to cover a few, uh, you know, the, the developed countries in the world, uh, didn't really work. Um, that, that even though on an equity principle it's, it's quite reasonable to expect the biggest uh, polluters to go first, um, the developed countries pointed out that you know you have a lot of major emerging economies like China and India that are that are major sources of emissions too, and so there is a need to get them on board. But of course, you know every government has their own quirks and and their own national politics to contend with. So the idea behind Paris was that you do it much more bottom up. You you ask every country to come 
put forward their own plans of how much, how ambitious they think they can each be individually, and then use some kind of peer pressure and and um, have these five-year cycles where you review progress and you go, whoa, we're really off track here, guys. Everyone needs to come forward and do more. Mm. And then and then you ask countries to come back and submit more ambitious plans. So it was a very the difference between Kyoto and and the Paris Agreement. They, they have very different theories behind them. Um, you know, it's still not clear if, if, you know, if Paris will deliver, but I think it's showing a bit more promise than, than the Kyoto model where some countries just said, we're not going to participate at all. All right. So since 2015, like you suggest to say that we've had five or six COPs, um, how, did this, how did this one unfold, COP27? Yeah, so the first few COPs after Paris were very much focused on delivering what was called the rule book. So the Paris Agreement provided the overall frame of we're going to do these five, you know, submit the national determined contributions every five years, come back and review those. But there was a lot of unanswered questions about, you know, what what needs to be in them, how does that review process work, um, how should countries be reporting on their actions to the UN, um, you know, making sure that everyone's using the same units to account um, uh, and, and, and things like that. So, um, so and up until Glasgow, the focus was really on um, getting those rules in place. Um, and, and, and a lot of that was really contentious. That you, you, Part of the challenge with this process is that every you have 195 governments coming together mm. and they have to agree by consensus on everything. <laughs> And if you can imagine trying to get 195 people together and agreeing on what kind of restaurant they want to get dinner at, mm. <laughs> it would be impossible. And so it's it's kind of amazing that they they can agree anything. Um, but that being said, the the what's good about this process is that every government is represented. Um, that that you have the smallest, uh, most vulnerable islands in the Pacific, uh, right up to the the biggest emitting countries like China and the U.S. Um, and they're all, they all have a seat at the table, unlike, say, the G7 or the G20, where it's a, a lot more of a smaller group, and they can maybe do some more things better, but this one is really much more representative. So, so for, the first, um, for the first four or five years up till Glasgow after Paris, it was about getting the rules in place. But now we've really got most of those in place. And, and e Egypt was a lot more about implementation. And the, um, the, the reason the COPs move, move country each year is that there's, a, there's an agreement that, that you, um, each, each year a different government takes the role of being the presidency of the COP. So they're supposed to be kind of neutral. They're supposed to bring the countries together, help um, run the negotiations. And it rotates by region each year. So this year was Africa's turn. Um, Egypt was the presidency. And the Egyptians said, we want this to be really focused on implementation. Mm. We have had a load of pledges. Uh, we've got the rules in place. Now we need to focus on actually getting stuff done. Um, and so, so this year, um, it was quite different, I think, to, to some of the previous COPs that were a lot more focused on on the nitty gritty sort of rule, hashing out the rules. This year was 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 trying to sort of figure out how do we um, how do we actually deliver on what we've said we're going to do. We're speaking with Joe Thwaites. He's the international climate finance advocate with the Natural Resources Defense Council, and we're talking about uh, COP COP 
in this case, COP27, just recently held back in uh, November, wrapped up, uh, in, in Egypt. And so, so Joe, you, you, you said, going back, you said that this COP was, like you say, Egypt wanted to focus on implementation. That was the operative word here. Can you give us some examples of the successes associated with that? Yeah, so I think on, on on the one thing that this COP really delivered on was was on the issue of loss and damage. So for 30 years, for the, the entirety of this process, the most vulnerable countries, so that the poorest countries in the world, the low-lying island states, the ones who are going to get hit first and worst by climate change and who have done very little to cause the problem, have been talking about the fact that that for them, climate change is an existential uh, crisis. That that um, for some of these small islands, they they when due to sea level rise, they may no longer exist in the future. Mm-hmm. And so they've talked about you know, uh, traditionally the the process has focused a lot on uh, emissions reductions, which obviously is vital to to stopping climate change. And then they've also talked a bit about adapting to climate impact, so so trying to take preventative measures to stop. Um, extreme weather, hurricanes, floods, droughts, things like that from 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 being too devastating. But uh, the most vulnerable countries have said, look, you know, we can do all of that and we're still going to be in a real, real dire straits here. Um, and so we are facing losses and damages that we can't adapt to um, and, and that we need the world to, to help us with this because we didn't cause it um, and, and we're, we're really suffering. And so for, for decades, this issue has been discussed, but there hasn't been a breakthrough. And in Egypt, there really was, because there was an agreement to uh, create a new fund that would that would help uh, the most vulnerable countries mm. with with dealing with, with uh, loss and damage from climate change. And so that was a real step forward. Um, on other elements, on, on in terms of uh, stronger commitments on emissions reductions, uh, on talking about the, the need to phase out fossil fuels, the conference didn't deliver. Um, there was there were many governments that were pushing for uh, stronger language there, um, but that that didn't didn't get into the final decision. But I do think that the agreement on on the loss and damage fund, uh, even compared to where we were two or three years ago, is a major breakthrough. What is the U.S.'s sort of participation and role looked like in the in the recent COPs and at COP twenty seven, um, including participation in the loss and damage um, arena? Yeah, so the the U.S. has been um, under the Biden administration. The U.S. has been very very strong on uh, pushing for more ambition on emissions reductions in order to keep global temperature rise to one point five degrees Celsius. So this is the the, the goal that, that, again, the small islands and the most vulnerable countries fought very hard for to get into the Paris Agreement. Um, but it's but it's difficult. It's going to need a lot more action uh, globally. We need to peak emissions by 2025 globally and then reduce them from there down to, to net zero by, by the middle of the century uh, to, to, to keep to that 1.5 degrees uh, goal. This is 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial uh, temperatures. Um, the U.S. has been really strong on that. Um, they've they've put forward a, a relatively ambitious um, 
domestic climate plan under the Paris framework. And then, of course, uh, earlier this year, we saw the Inflation Reduction Act that uh, made unprecedented levels of investment uh, that will help the U.S. deliver on its own emissions reductions. But on, on the issue of loss and damage, the U.S. has been more mixed. They, they have expressed a lot of concern about um, you know their ability to to get Congress to approve the funding uh, for 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 a new fund. Uh, the U.S. Has, has struggled actually to provide uh, climate funding for for vulnerable countries, uh, even for emissions reductions and adaptation, let alone for a, a for, for loss and damage. Um, so the U.S. did express a lot of skepticism, but in the end, they didn't block the agreement on the new fund, and they. Um, you know, I think that was that was notable and quite welcome. Um, and so, so yeah, I think on, on emission reductions, the US has really been championing the need for everyone to step up and do more, um, and 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 sharing their experiences of how how they got the Inflation Reduction Act passed. Um, uh, on on loss and damage and on climate finance, they've they've been more cautious. Um, but I think they are they are moving in a good direction, and, and certainly the goals that President Biden has set. On, on scaling up the, the support that the US provides for more vulnerable countries are very, very welcome. Um, and now, now all the eyes are on, on whether Congress will, will, will pass, um, will approve that funding. And right now they're in the, the thick of negotiations around uh, the, the appropriations bill that, that, could, that could increase uh, the funding that the U.S. provides to uh, to the most vulnerable countries. Yeah, give us an example of a vulnerable country uh, what the funding to that country might look like and what it might be spent on. Sure, yeah. So, I mean, a, a great example would be would be the Pacific island of Fiji. Um, so, um, you know, right right in the middle of the Pacific, uh, very vulnerable to, to sea level rise. And and I think a lot of the time when we talk about sea level rise, we think of, um, you know, the, the, the sea just submerging an island but even you know years before that that point the 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 first one of the first things that that small islands are struggling with is saltwater intrusion seawater intrusion mm -hmm. into um into their um aquifers mm -hmm. and and their sources of, of of fresh drinking water um so so um an example of 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 the kind of uh thing that this funding could do is could be is, is could be building up the infrastructure that Fiji needs, um, and and that's not just concrete uh, sea walls, but it can also be natural infrastructure uh, like mangroves or, or coral reefs um, that can that can sort of combat um, uh, sea level rise and can can sort of help um, protect uh, their natural resources, including water resources, um, so that they, they they actually have those to um, uh, to, to use uh, for longer. Um, and there are a lot of different ways that they can get this funding. So um, some of it comes from um, agencies like the U.S. Agency for International Development, that, that um, is the U.S. government's um, uh, development arm. But then the U.S. also contributes to international funds like the Green Climate Fund um, or the, the World Bank. And they also provide uh, funding for for Fiji and, and, and other vulnerable countries. Um, so, so there's a lot of different ways this funding can flow. A lot of needs out there. And then on loss and damage, of course, it's 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 about thinking about you know the need to relocate people. So Fiji has many different islands, and and some of the the, the more vulnerable islands, there's there's 
already discussions underway about you know how how do you move people either to higher ground or to to other islands within within the country um so so that they're they're, they're safer from as, as, as sea levels continue to rise as we look ahead from uh, cop 27 what are you know what are sort of the action items what are the countries working on um now that the the cop has sort of concluded and and when is the next um, conference of the parties? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, one of the big things is that they've agreed to create this new fund, but everything else is up in the air. There's a lot of questions around, you know, how, how will it work? Uh, who who will who will pay into the fund? Um, and it doesn't necessarily just have to be governments. It can also be, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about some innovative ideas of, um, you know, potentially taxes on, on aviation or, um, or, or taxes on fossil fuel companies. So there's a lot, lot of different ideas out there. There's also a big discussion about which countries should, should, um, should receive funding and what kind of activities they can get funding for. So over the next year, governments are going to be assembling several times to start to hash out these ideas and put forward a proposal to the next COP, which is in uh, Dubai at the end of uh, 2023. That's going to be COP28. Um, so that will be one of the big uh, areas to, to, to watch is, is how does this new fund take shape? Um, you know, obviously, it's, it's a big endeavor to create a new institution. Um, and governments don't do this lightly. That's why it, it took so long uh, to agree. But it is an important breakthrough. I think the other thing to look at is, are we going to see more ambitious commitments on emissions reductions? Because as, as the um, European Union uh, Commissioner on Climate Action, Franz Timmermans, pointed out, that if we don't actually tackle the problem at the source, which is greenhouse gas emissions and, and largely driven by our burning of fossil fuels, then loss and damages will just continue to get higher and higher and higher. And, and, and you know, we're just going to need more and more funding. So as with everything, you know, it's better to to uh, prevent it rather than uh, rather than work on the cure. So um, so there's a need to sort of look at these in, in conjunction that, that we, of course, need to be providing much more funding uh, to help the most vulnerable countries who did the least to cause the, the climate crisis. But at the same time, we need to be figuring out how do we actually stop uh, the emissions rising and, 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 and stop temperature rise, so, uh, because otherwise uh, the um, the impacts are, are going to be way, way more than, than, than anyone can afford to cope with. All right, we're getting the wrap-up sign from our, our producer. But I got to ask, so take 30 seconds or so to answer this. How are China and India doing in this? Are they, are they players? Are they interested? <laughs> 30 are seconds isn't much time. I know, I'm sorry, Joe. <laughs> That's challenging in 30 seconds. I know. I'd say yes, they are. They are very engaged. Um, and, and of course, China and India are very different countries. So um, Chinese uh, per capita greenhouse gas emissions are about the same as European uh, countries now, uh, whereas Indians are far, far smaller. Um, and and neither, are, neither of their emissions are as high as the U.S. on a, on a per-person basis, of course. Um, but, um, but also, you know, China's a, a growing economy. India is still, again, quite a poor country. So I think they're, they're different countries, even though they are both major emitters. They're very involved in the process. China has been stepping up more, um, has, been, um, has been taking more action. But the U.S., of course, has been pressing them to be doing more. And there's this, the real desire, I think, is, 
is the that they need to be moving together. Um, that the, the whole world recognizes that as the top two greenhouse gas emitters, China and the US are, are absolutely vital. Um, and I think that one of the things that was really good at COP27 uh, was that during that, Biden and uh, President Biden and President Xi of China uh, met at the G20 summit and started to um, uh, thaw some of the frosty relations mm. that had happened earlier in the year after Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. And that, I think, is good for climate action because we need the two countries talking. We need them to, to, be, to be moving together and to both be doing much more. Well, that's, that's at least warming of a positive. <laughs> we'll take it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Joe Thwaites is the international climate finance advocate with the Natural Resources Defense Council. And, of course, uh, your writings and, uh, and all climate-related writings can be found at nrdc.org, correct? Yes, that's right. Thank you. All right. Hey, let's, let's stay in touch. A lot more to talk about, of course, with respect to all the COPs, particularly COP28. That'll be an interesting conversation about yeah. the agenda that gets set for that. Joe, thanks again for joining us on this Green Thank Earth. Thank you for having me. All right. And joining us now for the second half of the show is Jared Farmer. He's a professor of history at the University of Pennsylvania and also the author of the new book, Elder Flora, A Modern History of Ancient Trees. Uh, professor Farmer, thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm in College Hall in Philadelphia, surrounded by objects from Utah, my home state. Oh, <laughs> fantastic. And, and we want to ask you yeah, about, that about that, too. Yeah, we got some questions about that. Um, so you are a self-described geohumanist. What does that mean? What is a geohumanist? Uh, that's me. I guess that's a word I made up. But basically, <laughs> it does describe my whole philosophy towards life and work. I really wanted a word that put earth first. Um, not in the kind of like earth first exclamation point. Though I did, you know, as a teenager in Utah, read the Monkey Wrench Gang and subscribe to the Earth First <laughs> Journal. But Earth First in this like really deep philosophical sense that Earth is precedent to all humanity and that humankind is a product of evolution on Earth. But also that, you know, we humans, kind of like plants, really are atmospheric changers, we're planet changers. And there's... Um, a kind of duty and a burden that comes with that knowledge. So I, I think of it as it's kind of a philosophy for earthlings. It's a very terrestrial mm. philosophy. Mm. Um, and it, it, that just captures what I want to do more than like historian or humanist. Um, yeah, earth, earth needs to go first. That's what I would say. But in the end, you know, I, I tell stories about people, <laughs> even though, you know, I've written a book about a mountain and a canyon and now a couple about trees. Um, it's it's all about the people too but uh people are part of the planet and right. now we are changing the planet so that's really the dynamic that i and other environmental historians are trying to get at well i i thought it was interesting to see you know a book all about trees from a historian and then you have given us some perspective on that um but what draws you to a, a topic like elder flora and and again, can you define define what elder flora means for us? Sure. Yeah, it's another word I made up. I made up yeah. a lot of words for this book. <laughs> great, Something I've never actually done before. I know that I can't seem kind of pretentious, but I guess I reached that kind of like stage in my career where like, I'm just like, <laughs> yeah, 
I'm going to do that. But also, like, the planet is changing so fast that I almost think that, like, we need new vocabulary to mm-hmm. kind of, like, make sense of what's going on. Um, elder flora, though, I mean, it's basically just a word for old trees or ancient trees. Um, it's one way of getting around right, typing in old trees or ancient trees over and over and over again <laughs> in a book. Tree is an old word. It's a powerful word. But it, to me, it doesn't have maybe like the lyricism or the beauty I was really going for. But there's like kind of a deeper reason I wanted to use elder flora. Because not all plants that can live a really long time are typically considered trees. And I want to suggest that, you know, we need to maybe enlarge our circle of dignity um, and respect to all kinds of things, plants and otherwise, that can live a long time. So I'm trying to kind of play with the notion of like, what is a tree anyway? And that's that is one of the things that I take up in the book because it's actually a surprisingly difficult question. Like, what is a tree? And basically, I, I came to the conclusion that a tree is any plant that people call a tree because it is ultimately a term of dignity. It's it's not a term of botany. Um, and there's all kinds of plants that I think, yeah, deserve our respect. So elder flora, I, I guess I wanted something that's maybe a little Tolkienish, um, uh, that kind of suggests, I mean, some history of religion. Um, so that's that's a word that I, yeah, I, I it just felt right. Wow, we I like love it. it. <laughs> yeah, we like it. We're we're on the Elder Flora train, and okay, you, okay, and and uh, the classic Elder Floras that we think of, of course. Uh, Redwoods and giant sequoias and bristlecone. Oh, the bristlecone! Right, we'll yeah. get to those. But but it's not always, as you suggest, that it's not always a singular tree that could be considered elder flora. It can actually be, in a, say, a grove. And and you talk about uh, the the aspen grove in Fish Lake Plateau here in central Utah, the panda, yeah. and yeah. that has an elder quality to it. And it's it's been I guess there's some wide ranging estimates of its age, but it's well over a thousand years. Is that right? Oh yeah, certainly, and possibly it's as old as the Holocene. It's impossible to actually date precisely, um, and I'm a little skeptical actually about Pando. It's it's amazing, um, but it's it's not singular. There, there's lots of other. Um, aspen groves out there in the American West. And of course, aspen is found all over the, the Northern Hemisphere. In a sense, like, the reason why Pando got so famous, I, I hate to, like, de-romanticize it, but it, it's because <laughs> there's a, a highway runs through it. It's just, it's very easy right. to measure, to visit, and um, and there's good satellite photography of it going back. Um, but but just to step back for a second, I think you're right to 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 point out that trees can be old in different dimensions, and that's what I'm trying to get at in this book. In part, is just this appreciation of all the different ways that trees experience time, time and place, and place and time, just so different than us. They're, they're so I, I came to think of trees as almost like extraterrestrials, but here on Earth, or they're like ultra terrestrials, right? Because they they're like these alien life forms, but they're among us. Um, so trees, of course, like on this individual level, like you think of a single trunk conifer, mm-hmm. like a bristle cone. Yeah, it can live up to 5,000 years. Um, there could also be really old populations, like old growth forests, and that can be you know, a population of individuals, let's say, but it can also be like a single clonal group like Pando. 
Uh, but you can also have very old genetic lineages. There are certain trees. Uh, ginkgo is the kind of classic example that are kind of more or less unchanged in their life strategy, their look, um, their morphology, um, going back over 100 million years. I mean, these are trees that, you know, predate the dinosaurs. Um, so that's a third kind of dimension of old. The fourth one would be relationships with humans because like the human impulse to revere you know to venerate to care for an old tree is about as old as it gets it's as old as recorded history some of the oldest stories in the world are about people either cutting down a sacred tree or trying to protect a sacred tree and so the the book is is looking at all of these things you know old specimens old populations old lineages and then fundamentally it's about long-term relationships with long-lived beings and kind of the, the hope that I'm trying to leave people with, even though it's hard to have hope, is mm. that this is something we can continue. This is a relationship that goes deep into our species history, but it's shared with others, um, other life forms, and that's something we can keep going. Well, I think here in Utah, many people are familiar with bristlecone pines, even if they haven't yeah. um, maybe seen them themselves. But we, we know about them. We know they can be ancient. And you share an incredible story in the book um, that we wanted to ask you to share with our listeners about a tree called WPN114. <laughs> will, you, will you tell us about that tree? Sure, yeah. I mean, people might know it better by the name it received posthumously, Promethea. So this is the oldest tree ever known definitively, ever known to science, right? So there's different ways of knowing the age of a tree, mm -hmm. right? And so sometimes, I'm just going to step back a bit before we kind of get to like why Prometheus is at the very end of the book, um, sure. in a very kind of melancholy epilogue. Yeah. So the book really kind of starts with in the ancient world and in a sense starts with history religion because having a tree that is as old as the world or a tree as old as time or as old as the temple as old as the prophet i mean again that's um very very common and and you notice that there's a kind of relation there's this relational age like this tree is as old as like this site or this temple, this shrine, this city. And that's how people measure the ages of trees for mm. many thousand years all around the world is through relation to basically a human building or human practice or prophet or mm. you think of like the Buddha and the Bodhi tree. Um, but if you get to the modern period, basically 18th century forward, you have scientists saying like, oh, let's try to measure exactly how old the tree is. We want to know the exact year. And that requires uh, tree rings. And it requires, you know, extracting a core sample from a tree. Um, the problem is like not all trees, actually very few trees, <laughs> have complete tree ring records. Most trees hollow out. Hmm. You know, they, they just rot over mm -hmm. time. Um, so you need kind of like a rare uh, occurrence. You need a tree that can actually live thousands of years that retains all of its tree rings. And there's only about 25 to 30 species in the whole world that can live a thousand years or more. Um, and they're mostly conifers. And there's a kind of a disproportionate number that live in the American West, which is a great law, a hotspot for longevity for kind of evolutionary and historical reasons. Mm. 
But anyway, but it's really in these kind of arid environments that you find this kind of tree ring samples that haven't eroded or decomposed. Because so so you need you need a tree that can live for a long time, but then it needs to be in an environment where you're not going to get decay. Right. So in a sense, like great bristlecone pines, I mean, they are the oldest living things in the world, but they're also the oldest living things that we can measure. And that's what science cares about, right? So right. in a sense, they're, they're, they're the perfect scientific study for tree longevity. Um, and, and I'm not like, you know, putting down bristlecones or anything by saying that, but like, in a sense, you can think of them as like a kind of a laboratory specimen. It's an outdoor laboratory, but it's a laboratory specimen. So... Okay. The good thing about bristle cones is that you don't have to kill a tree to measure it because they grow so slow. They don't actually get that wide. And as long as you, you know, crank in your increment bore correctly, you should be able to, like, you know, pull out a sample and under a microscope count all the rings and get a definitive count. Right. Very unfortunately, um, there was a student, was a graduate student. Later, he was a professor at the University of Utah. Very good professor of geomorphology. Did fantastic work about uh, Lake Bonneville. Hmm. Um, his name was Donald Rusk Curry, but when he was a graduate student, he was doing uh, field work in various cirques in the American West. He was kind of interested in glacial retreat in the Holocene, basically how the glaciers were melting in these kind of high alpine locations and was hoping to kind of figure out like, could I kind of map this by kind of looking at trees and where they grow now and kind of figure out, you know, when the ice retreated. And he was in uh, the Cirque beneath Wheeler Peak, which is, you know, one of the highest peaks in Montana. It's right on the Utah Nevada border. It's now part of Great Basin National Park. It was not a national park back then. And he had permission, he had permits. He talked to like the local ranger in Ely, and actually one of the rangers was there um, when they cut down the tree because he broke a bunch of his, he broke all of his increment borers. He tried many times, he like poked it. <laughs> uh, this tree had all kinds of like basically stigmata uh, by the end of it. And I mean, I, I go into it in much more detail. It's, 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 it's very sad and melancholy, and it sort of haunted him the rest of his career, and it was a huge kind of um, uh, kind of black eye on the local forest service and kind of helped lead to them losing Wheeler Peak, and it became you know, part of the National Park Service. And it sort of like became a kind of like a modern day myth because it reminded, I think, a lot of people these like ancient stories of people who violate trees, desecrate trees. You know, you can think about the Epic of Gilgamesh or other stories going back to ancient Greece um, of men attacking sacred trees and bringing them down. Though, of course, at the time, and it's it's a scientist, right, who just wants data. He's trying to get data for his dissertation. So I sort of think of this tree, if I think of it mythologically, it would be like, this is not the tree of life or the tree of knowledge. This is the tree of data. Hmm. And scientists extracted the data because data collection is the end all and be all of modern science. So there's actually something kind of very appropriate about 
the death of Prometheus as lamentable as it is, because in a sense, it's it's about collecting climate data hmm. and somehow like having like the stump of the oldest tree ever known to science in a cirque that really has no ice anymore. It, it, yeah. I don't know. It, it, there's something like deeply metaphorical about it. I mean, like it, there's a reason why people tell campfire stories about Prometheus. <laughs> right. Which, which the scientists, you know, labeled WPN. That was White Pike County, Nevada. That's the 114th tree he tried to sample. Oh. And but again, like, this this is the oldest tree ever known, but there's lots of other trees that are probably older, might be older, mm. at the clonal level, at the individual level. But no one will ever cut down a bristle cone pine again. I hope no one ever cuts down any tree um, this old ever again. And surely there are other older bristle cones out there but basically, probably the oldest rings have like ablated away in the desert winds. They don't rot, but they do eventually, you know, erode. Actually, just sort of like you imagine, sure, delicate, like delicate arch. You know what I mean? Like that, like the, these old trees actually gradually are worn off just by the the sandy winds in the desert mountains. Yeah. Um, so it's 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 more like this was the oldest knowable tree to science and it was killed in the act of knowing and i mean part of the book is like kind of wrestling with this question like how much do we really need to know do we need to know the identity mm -hmm. of the oldest tree in the world but on a, on a deeper level do we need more climate data <laughs> um, <laughs> i i because I, I, I i'm sort of at the point where we don't need to know any more about um just the basic mechanics of global warming. <laughs> it's wow. like we, we, we know enough, we need to act. It's, it's, a, it's about the politics of action. Like we have so much science, we have so much data, terabytes and terabytes of redundant climate data. We just need to act. And that's kind of where I end with the book. Um, but it's in a sense, it's, it's about sacred trees i mean at a really fundamental level this book is about sacred trees and I, and I guess what i'm doing which surprised myself is tell the history of sacred trees through science because again i start with these ancient trees of the ancient world which are found at temple compounds and at shrines and things like that and i end in the mountains of the great basin with you know male scientists and cowboy hats with their increment bores. But it's <laughs> it's very interesting that all of these bristle cones are now de facto sacred sites. People approach them almost like they're on pilgrimage. Yeah. yeah. And I would and I think of them as secular sacred sites. And there's a way that history of religion and history of science circle back on one another. And I actually love that fact. Yeah. And I think it shows you again how deep this human arboreal bond is and even though i i don't think we need any more climate data um uh, i'm being a little dramatic but I, I, you see the point though and i don't think we need to cut down any more bristle combines or maybe even to take many more increment borings i'm very glad that like science in a sense created all these new sacred trees in our midst in the Great Basin. It's such a gift to yeah. kind of visit them, but also think with them, to feel through them. Um, and it, it was so special for me as someone, you know, from Provo, Utah, to be able to finish my book, uh, kind of writing about one of the emblematic species of my right. home bioregion. Right.
Well, I had to add um, one little piece of this story that stuck with me. Um, in light of your comment about these sort of, you know, secular sacred trees, and that's that that you wrote that the initial, um, like the chains operator that they brought in to help cut down this tree got to the site. And this was like, you know, a tough old guy who'd been through it all and he saw the tree and he refused to cut it down, um, which I thought was just absolutely fascinating. Um, and yeah, he was, a, he was a local White Pine County guy. He was a you know, rancher, blackjack dealer, you know, like a... Uh, tough guy, good old boy. Um, I, I don't have all the details, but like I, I, I feel very confident saying that he felt misgivings and then just said, "I don't want to be a part of it." Mm. Uh, there was also a malfunction of the chainsaw. There was there was a bunch of reasons, but he he wanted no part of it once he saw um, hmm. what was going to be done. And I and, and there's 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 a number of stories I tell like this in the book of people who, you know, cut trees for a living um, or have cut trees, men, cut many trees in their life who, when confronted with a particular tree, just it feels wrong or it feels like a violation of the sacred. I mean, again, the, this is, a, I think, a very deep human impulse. Um, of course, it didn't stop <laughs> the clearance of some of the greatest oldest forest in the history of the planet in the 19th and 20th centuries <laughs> throughout <laughs> the Pacific Rim. I mean, so yeah. the American West is like, I think such a f important region for this story because it really was Americans in California who both kind of invented new ways to destroy, to clear and to humiliate, I want to say, old trees and mm. you know, to turn them into like traveling sideshows. If you think of sequoias and to like to tunnel through them so you can, you know, like pay a, uh, a tourist or, uh, you know, to, you know, to, to drive through a tree essentially. Right. right. Um, but then also it was Americans who invented the idea of like a national park devoted to plants. I mean, nobody had ever done that before. And then we got Sequoia National Park and others like Joshua Tree. And of course the bristlecone pines are protected. So <laughs> you, you see these like dueling impulses to, uh, to venerate and to destroy. And again, there's an ancient history that it's just like in the 19th and 20th centuries, it was like on an industrial scale, right? It was like on global scale, the way that whole forests in California and New Zealand um, and Chile were just leveled and, you know, tens upon thousands of uh, multi-millennial plants burned or, or, or cut down in a period of decades. Jared, let me, uh, we got a few more minutes. Yeah. Let me quickly reintroduce you. We're speaking with Jared Farmer. He is a history professor at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of the new book, Elder Flora, A Modern History of Ancient Trees. Um, like I say, just a, just a few more minutes. Uh, this might be a little too sciencey or say, but is there any type of common element, either chemical-wise or biological-wise, that allows these trees these different species of trees or flora to, to live for thousands of years? Yeah, like I said, there's only about 25 to 30 species that can live more than a thousand years. Um, I like to think of them as millennials because, you know, <laughs> that's another way of thinking of millennials. Um, they're almost all gymnosperms, right? So they're almost actually all conifers within uh, gymnosperms. 
the cypress family has the most hmm. millennial trees. Uh, the pine family would be number two. So there's there's a obviously like a genetic component, um, but there's also a habitat component because trees that are basically growing in antiseptic environments. So if it's like cold and dry and harsh, mm. it basically if, if nobody else wants to live there and no other thing, it, then the tree, if it can make it, as long as it's like drought tolerant, it's it's also it's going to have fewer predators and pathogens mm. and competitor plants. And also there's going to be fewer people maybe cutting it down if it's in a really austere environment. So there's that habitat element. And there's that old maximum maxim developed by Edmund Schulman, the great treeing scientist, that you find longevity under adversity, and that is generally true. Um, but the third component uh, characteristic you find is uh, chemical. There's an absolute chemical association between um, you know longevity and essentially like resin content. You know, the, the, the oldest living trees have lots and lots of resin ducts and produce. Uh, resins that essentially delay or defend against uh, decomposition and also help with stability. Yeah, so there's the genetics, there's the, the, the chemical part, and the habitat. But I will just say one last thing about this kind of, like these place ways you can think of it to, to longevity. So you basically find the oldest trees in the world in two kinds of places. So one would be like yeah, think of the White Mountains or the Snake Mountains or the Wawas or these other Great Basin Mountains, like really remote, rugged, dry, austere. And there's no people most days, right? Um, the people have been around for thousands of years. So they're, 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 they're places where people don't generally go. The other place, kind of place you find ancient trees are where people always are. They're like in the heart of the city. They're in the heart of the temple compound. They're in the shrine. Basically, they benefit from human care. Right. So that's the kind of, I mean, it's not a paradox exactly, but it, it kind of shows you like that we are tree's best friend, but also we're tree's best enemy or, you know, top enemy. We are the apex predator of trees, but we're also the great enabler of the spread of certain species. If you think about ginkgo and metasequoia, two trees that lived through multiple mass extinction events and almost died out, but then humans have spread them all around the world. So like humans love trees and they care for them. So there's a way that we are, of course, saving trees and, and creating the conditions for longevity. But of course, we're also the great destroy destroyers and desecrators and well, like users, we're like the Hindu so, Hindu god yeah. Kali, you know, we're the, we're yeah, the protector yeah, and right. destroyer of worlds at the same time, with respect yeah. to trees. <laughs> yeah, I think that is really, uh, really apt. That's a thank you for that. Uh, you're welcome. Well, thank you for taking the time. Uh, the chat. We got to wrap up. Jared Farmer, uh, author of the book Elder Flora: A Modern History of Ancient Trees. It's available now. Uh, Jared, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us this morning on This Green Earth. Oh, it's my great pleasure. Thank you.